can take a broad look at all these genes and hopefully come up with a foundation to start with and maybe shortcut some training errors or some things that could predispose you to injury or overtraining or undertraining and really focus in on you know what you can do as a starting point to optimize the training that you're doing and then that involves circling back and retesting over time to see if we're on the right track Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. In this episode, I share a conversation with Dr. Mark Goodman, who's an emergency and sports medicine physician and the director of sports medicine for Wild Health, a genomics-based precision medicine practice where I've also been enjoying working recently. Dr. Goodman received his medical training at the Oregon Health and Science University and completed his residency at the University of Utah, followed by a fellowship in sports medicine. He now enjoys applying his passion for health and performance optimization to provide personalized care for issues surrounding athletes of all different levels. And in this conversation, we talk about the role our genes may play in our response to training, including our training strengths and weaknesses, how much recovery time we need, and even which supplements may benefit us the most. We even spend some time digging into my own personal genomics and talking about some of the factors that might have played a role in my CrossFit Games career. Mark covers a lot of interesting stuff here, and if you want to learn more about genomics-based precision medicine, check out the Wild Health Fellowship for Physicians and Health Coaches at www.wildhealthfellowship.com. That's www.wildhealthfellowship.com. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. So with that, let's get started with the episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm super excited to be here with Dr. Mark Goodman today. Um, And we're going to talk all about exercise genomics. And we even have my uh, results here to put this into context, which should be interesting. But let's just start with a little bit of your background, Mark, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Give us kind of the, the rundown on how you ended up in medicine. And then I know you had a path to emergency medicine and then sports medicine. And now you're also working with Wild Health with precision medicine. So how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. That um, I'll try to keep it short because it could be the whole podcast, I suppose. But so <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in, <laughs> in Oregon and uh, had a lot of broad interests, really didn't know what I was going to do with my life when I got done with, with undergrad. Um, knew I wanted to do something in healthcare, but wasn't quite sure what that was and took some time off before uh, working a bunch of different jobs, kind of playing around and um, experimenting with a few different things and coming back to applying to medical school and was fortunate enough to get in, um, which I feel, you know, in, in retrospect was probably one of the smartest moves I've ever made. And it was uh, kind of by dumb luck that I ended up, I think, going to medical school, but really enjoyed the science part of medicine and then being able to apply that in a useful way to hopefully make changes on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And so I did my, my training at OHSU in Portland for medical school and then was in Utah for uh, residency and fellowship and did residency in emergency medicine and then a sports medicine fellowship. And I'd always kind of known going into emergency medicine that I was hoping to do sports medicine on top of that, to have kind of a niche within emergency medicine, uh, but also be able to have a really broad knowledge base. And I feel like the training in emergency medicine is 
unique in a lot of ways that you can kind of see and treat and have a lot of knowledge about almost everything that shows up through the door, but then being able to take that kind of wide range of knowledge and apply it in a focused way. And so now I spend most of my time working in sports medicine practice. I do non-surgical sports medicine and still work in the emergency department a little bit. And then recently got more interested in this kind of health and wellness and health and disease spectrum. And, you know, what does sports medicine truly mean? And when we look at exercise as medicine, how can we better apply that to our patients? So over the last couple of years, that's been kind of a change in the trajectory of looking at athletes and people who want to be more active and then focusing in not only in treating the injuries that they have, but making them healthier as a person and preventing their next injury. And so that's how I got involved with wild health and then taking that on a personalized level with being able to apply that knowledge in a precision way using genomics and laboratory testing as a part of that. Awesome. What was your most interesting job that you had? You said you had a few different jobs before you uh, started med school. Yes, I, I've had um, a lot of jobs. I, I spent time, my first job was working at a local fast food chain. So I did that for a while. Mm -hmm. I delivered pizzas. I um, worked in multiple restaurants. I was a paper boy. I dug ditches for an irrigation company, wow. did construction for a while. <laughs> I worked for an airline throwing the bags on airplanes, which was kind of fun. So that was, that's kind of interesting. I worked at a golf course for a while. Uh, so yeah, I've done a, kind of a little bit of everything, wow. but I, yeah. I find that it's kind of fun because, you know, when I see patients, I'm like, Oh, like you, you work concrete. Like that's, I've done that. That's a really hard job. You know, <laughs> like I, I can kind of relate a little bit more, but uh, no, it was fun. I, I feel like I got a lot of opportunities to try a lot of different things before settling on what I'm doing now. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a lot of different things. And it sounds like two themes of more like manual labor and food. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I still kind of enjoy food and yeah, manual labor. Yeah. So it's worth it. It goes with okay. well sports medicine somehow. Um, there you that's go. Great. And I know you also have been doing CrossFit and um, have been to the CrossFit level one. And so can you just talk a, a little bit about how you found CrossFit and what role that's played for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I think I came to CrossFit like a lot of people. I always enjoyed being in the gym, um, but found myself through kind of high school and then through undergrad and college being in the gym a lot, but not, but doing the same thing over mm -hmm. and over. It was like, oh, today is leg day. But well, actually that didn't really happen. It was, it was all arm day. Right. <laughs> in college. Um, just curls and we'll legs next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, just feeling kind of bored and stagnant with what I was doing uh -huh. um, and actually got introduced to CrossFit by, by Mike Mallon, who's a good friend of mine um, mm -hmm. and one of the wild health co-founders. So started doing CrossFit when I was in residency and I, you know, showed up to the CrossFit gym feeling like I was in pretty decent shape for mm -hmm. being strong and spending a lot of time in what I thought was, uh, was useful activity at the gym and just got smoked, you know, for <laughs> every day for months and months at a time. Um, but also really enjoyed the new challenge of doing something different and just that whole shift in mindset of doing a more functional program and working on things like mobility, which I'd completely neglected mm -hmm. um, or doing some movements that weren't things I would normally put into a just average 24 hour fitness gym routine. Mm -hmm. um, so I really enjoyed doing that and then got pretty involved in, in CrossFit and was spending a lot of time at the CrossFit gym in Utah and then here in Oregon as well. Um, and continued to, to 
do CrossFit now, uh, mostly in my garage these days during the pandemic, mm-hmm. waiting to kind of transition back into the gym. But I then found the CrossFit MD course, which sounded really fascinating and actually tied in really well with the sports medicine stuff we're doing. So I actually met you initially yeah. at that CrossFit MD course, which was, was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of like-minded people trying to work on the same thing of how we apply CrossFit and exercise in general to a broader population to encourage health and prevent disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know you also are a great example of applying your fitness, um, doing other things that you enjoy and are a pretty impressive mountain biker. Is that correct? Or I know you do a lot of different sports, but how do you, how do you apply your fitness? I think impressive is probably the word. Avid biker and a lot of time on the street. I mostly uh, ride and race gravel bikes these days, and uh, cycle cross as well are kind of my main things. So I found, you know, one of the interesting things with CrossFit, I think, is it does give you good base of fitness, but then what I've gotten more interested in is how do you then apply that at the right dose of intensity and strength to also be a well-rounded athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and in an endurance sport, sometimes you need to add or subtract different things in order to do that. So that's been an interesting evolution as well mm-hmm. to, to meet your specific goals. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's start diving in here on the topic of the day, which is exercise genomics. So just as kind of a broad overview, we, we know that there's so many different factors that contribute to our response to exercise training. And, you know, this is a great example. You, you have, you know, 150 members at a CrossFit affiliate and they're all doing the same programming, but not every single person is going to get the same results. And there's so many other things that contribute, whether it's things they're doing outside of the gym, like sleep and nutrition and recovery or our genetics. Um, and so obviously genetics are playing a role. Otherwise we would all just do the same exact training program. We could all be professional athletes. So there is, um, there is something there. And I know you've spent a lot of time really digging in to understand what sort of the state of our understanding is of, of our gen- the role our genetics play in our response to training. Um, so how do you, just as kind of an overview, how do you think about, um, the role of genomics in our, in exercise? So I think you made a really good point there. We, we kind of intuitively know that people have different strengths and weaknesses when it comes to training and adaptation. Um, and, and whether that's just, you know, looking at a guy like me, like I, I'm not going to be a professional basketball player. Like I'm, I'm five, eight <laughs> and well, actually probably closer to five, seven, but I say five, eight, uh, well, your so, hair you know, kind of like, stick up a little bit yeah. yeah, with my hair and some shoes <laughs> on. But so genetically, like the chance of me going on to having a professional basketball career, just based on the genes that control height, they're pretty low. And that doesn't even account for my lack of skill playing basketball, but we can apply that across the board. So we know that certain people excel at certain activities for whatever reason. And that, that process is incredibly complex on why that is. And so when we dive into looking at genetics, we need to kind of break it down into a couple different factors. So genetics is kind of looking at an individual gene. And so typically that's been applied to things that are inherited in a pretty predictable way. Things like, you know, CF, Huntington, some of these diseases that are linked to a single gene that are passed down through generations. What we focus more on is on what's called genomics, which is the study of the entire genome and how that controls a response and looking back and saying, okay, so, you know, we've got a patient or a population of patients that respond a certain way. Let's kind of backtrack and see what their genes look like. And are there predictors in the genome 
that controls that outcome. And so that's more genomics. And then layered on top of that, there's epigenetics, which is how genes are turned on and off and how those genes are controlled, which is probably the most important piece of this whole thing. So when we look at a patient's gene profile and their genetics and genomics, we have to look at how those genes are expressed down the line, which plays a role in not only performance, but we can look at laboratory testing to get an idea of what proteins are turned on and off. And then we also have to take into account epigenetics. So things like diet and sleep that can activate and deactivate these genes. So the process becomes really complex. And I guess just as kind of a disclaimer for this whole discussion that we're about to dive into on exercise genomics, you know, the science here is really interesting, but it's pretty new. And we don't have a single gene. Like I can't look at your genetics and say, oh, you've got this one A to C translation. So therefore there's some magic bullet of something you should be doing differently or absolutely not doing. That's, that's not really how this works. We can take a broad look at all these genes and hopefully come up with a foundation to start with and maybe shortcut some training errors or some things that could predispose you to injury or overtraining or undertraining and really focus in on, you know, what you can do as a starting point to optimize the training that you're doing. And then that involves circling back and retesting over time to see if we're on the right track. So it's one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle itself. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about the role of exercise in the training response has probably been one of the most interesting things. And we have a couple of studies that we can look at, but the two that are most commonly cited took this polygenetic risk profile. So they took between eight and 15 genes, paired those together, and then made a risk score and were able to predict how someone would respond to different types of exercise. And I find this really interesting. This is something we've been working with with Wild Health is that this doesn't say you're absolutely going to do better with one sport or one type of activity. And it shouldn't be something that you say, okay, well, I'm not going to do CrossFit anymore because my genetics say I don't want to do that. You should do what you enjoy, but maybe this can help you modify that. And one of the, the interesting studies here didn't really show a change in how patients did as far as their overall performance. What it did show though, was a change in their training response. So people could still perform at the same level, but some were going to have a better response to a certain type of training rather than another. And so whether you then focus on more of a strength-based program or you're doing kind of shorter high intensity intervals or VO2 intervals and how you layer those into your programming, we can maybe make some, um, some educated guesses based on someone's genes on how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this, this in particular is really interesting to think about in the context of CrossFit and the CrossFit methodology, because obviously we are very well-rounded and we talk about trying to um, be constantly varied and varying our, you know, our time domains and our exercises and movements and all these things. Um, and so we also talk a lot about getting the most benefit to our overall fitness by working on our weaknesses. So for me, like when I first was exposed to this, I sort of thought like, okay, if I get the best, I'm, I'm actually, my genetics are actually pretty middle of the road in terms of response to strength versus endurance, um, which maybe makes sense why I did well in the CrossFit games because uh -huh. of, um, just being more balanced. But um, when I first was exposed to this, I thought, well, if someone is really far on the endurance side and they respond really well to endurance training, then maybe would they get more benefit to their overall fitness by incorporating being a little more strength biased so that they are more well-rounded if that's the goal that they're 
that they're looking for. Yeah, so there's some important pieces there, I think, that, that you have to take into context is, so what is your overall goal? Um, so if you're training to be a CrossFit athlete, you're going to need a very well-rounded kind of base of training. If you're training to power lift or training to run marathons and those goals shift and the training needs to shift accordingly. Mm -hmm. But I also think looking at CrossFit as a whole and exercise as a medicine. So, I mean, CrossFit is a very potent stimulus mm -hmm. to um, induce a response to exercise. And that's why we, we like it. And that's why I think people do well and see improvements with CrossFit programming. But it's all about using the right type of exercise and the right dose for the right person. And not everyone's going to be able to be in a CrossFit gym five or six days a week and be able to sustain that level of intensity over time and still have a beneficial adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be in the CrossFit gym at all or that they can't modify. And that's one of the things that I think CrossFit is great at is you can modify in so many different ways that maybe that athlete then based on how they're feeling and their genetics, they say, okay, well, today I'm going to go a little bit lighter. Today I'm going to focus more on doing the fundamentals of the strength programming and I'm going to go lighter on the, the metabolic conditioning side of things. Um, but how to use that stimulus in a way that you get the most improvement without exposing the athlete to unnecessary risk of injury. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And that kind of dovetails into the next topic, which is that, you know, a lot of what we have learned about or what we know currently about um, genomics and exercise has to do with recovery. And um, there's certain um, SNPs that can predispose people to rhabdo or to DOMS. Um, and so how can someone take that information into consideration when they're thinking about their training program? Yeah. So I think this is really interesting stuff to dive into. And um, looking through your genetics in particular, you you have a higher risk of rhabdo and DOMS. Is that something when you were training at a really high level, did you experience that? Or do you still experience DOMS after big workouts? So this is actually really interesting because I think this is where training can definitely, like an example of how train, training can help you overcome these things. So now mm -hmm. when I'm you know, I'm doing classic CrossFit one workout a day, maybe four or five days a week. I do get very sore like two days later. Like right now I'm extremely mm -hmm. sore from workout I did on Monday. Um, but when I was training at a high level and training for hours a day, I slowly increased my volume over the course of several years, but was at the point where I was training like three to five plus hours a day and I would rarely ever get sore. And so, and I was doing appropriate recovery and sleep and all those other things. Um, and everything was very dialed in, but I do think, um, I can see how maybe I'm predisposed to that based on how I feel now, but that, um, with training, you can potentially overcome some of these things. Like I think one of my strengths as an athlete was that I was able to recover really quickly and really wasn't, um, didn't get sore very often. Yeah. And so that's a great point. So these, like I mentioned, are a foundation, but they're not an absolute predictive factor. And when we look at things like rhabdo and DOMS, you know, it's a pretty complicated pathophysiologic process that's at play here. So there's the muscle damage component of things, and then the inflammation component that follows and how the muscle 
repairs itself over time that leads to both of those processes. So, you know, looking at your genetics, there's a few things that stood out. So you are a heterozygous at SOD2. So this allele that's been studied, that's super oxide dismutase, which plays a role in how your body manages free radical production within the cell. And this is a really interesting gene to look at because like all these genetic pieces that we, we uh, test and look at, there's not really like a good or a bad. You, you don't have like the good genetics and the bad genetics. You just have what's you. Mm-hmm. And then we focus on how that affects the downstream or could predict downstream results. And we think that a certain level of inflammation in exercise is beneficial. And it's probably necessary to induce adaptation because if you don't work hard enough to create some small amounts of muscle damage and some inflammation, then you don't adapt and build that muscle back stronger the next time around. And so a lot of elite athletes actually have this heterozygous mutation to SOD2 because they want enough inflammation and free radicals to induce signaling down the road to create adaptation. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you have a really decreased SOD2 um, activity, then that's where people run into trouble with increased inflammation and being overly sore and things like DOMS and rhabdo can follow. So that's interesting. It plays into kind of, I think why you're so successful as an athlete. The other things we've looked at in your genetics are the uh, zinc transporter. So SLC30A8, which has been studied as an increased risk for DOMS. And that has to do with how your body packages insulin and insulin signaling. And this one's also really interesting because it has a role in risk factors for type two diabetes. So we know that based on this, patients respond to insulin a little bit differently and probably secrete insulin a little bit differently. Now, insulin is a key anabolic component of signaling muscle growth and hypertrophy. So not only is this SNP important for type two diabetes, but also plays a role in how your muscles respond to exercise and a hypertrophy response over time. And that insulin signaling pathway is really important for regulating the breakdown of proteins after resistance exercise and regulating protein balance and amino acid delivery. And so this one, you're um, at higher risk here for delayed onset muscle soreness. And same with another SNP actin three, which has been extensively studied in this strength versus endurance preference. And here you're definitely more on the strength side of the spectrum. So you're going to have a little bit less response to inflammation and muscle damage over time. And so the combination of all of these things together, it does predispose you to having a higher risk for things like DOMS and rhabdo, but it's not like you have all these factors pointed in one direction. And like you had mentioned, the interesting thing here is these systems can be trained. And we see this in elite level athletes, especially elite endurance athletes, where they can actually they train their inflammatory response. So they upregulate these genes in a way that they can manage all that inflammation. So especially, you know, people who are doing huge cycling events or things where they're running or riding for five or six hours a day, their levels of the glutathione system and other endogenous anti-inflammatories are going to be upregulated over time. Those get trained just like your muscles get trained to manage the huge doses of inflammation you're getting from training. So the way to I'd look at this kind of to apply it practically would be, you know, if you're starting someone from a beginning training program or you're ramping up, this would be something where I just keep a mind, especially on those eccentric exercises that we know are a higher risk for DOMS and for rhabdo. So things like GHD sit-ups, when I've seen rhabdo and crassfit athletes, that's been the one that's really gotten people is doing high volumes of GHD sit-ups or a lot of eccentric work 
as well. And I'd want to maybe layer that into the programming or have someone really build on that slowly and do that in a pretty controlled way with an eye on how they respond to that. And then gradually build that in over time or someone with maybe more favorable genetics that wouldn't predispose them to this, they could work on that eccentric movements a little bit more quickly and layer that in faster in their training program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And just thinking about, you know, practically speaking, of course, it's one of the things that, you know, we are always mindful of, especially with beginners or especially with, um, athletes who are starting CrossFit later in life, but have a previous, you know, athletic competitive background and have taken some time off from exercises, just being especially mindful of eccentric exercises and the risk of rhabdo. And so, you know, with everyone, we're going to be careful and, and work them up slowly, but just knowing this might help even for the individual, just to be that extra piece of information in the back of their mind to say like, Hey, let me make sure that I'm doing this the right way and not push it, not take that extra risk. Um, that's one of the things I think I like about the precision medicine approach in general is just that how having that extra data, I mean, even with things like nutrition or sleep or exercise in general, like we all know we need to sleep well and do all the things to get good quality sleep. We all know we need to eat real foods. We all know we need to exercise, but sometimes having the specific genetic uh, or genomic information, I think can provide more context and maybe more motivation and just keep it a little bit more at the forefront of people's minds. Um, knowing exactly what their, their genomics are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if anything, it's creating a starting point and then you can experiment and do some kind of end of one experiments from there awesome. to determine how you're responding and modify and then circle back and retest. So I think it does really put some of these general health things, you know, we're, we're telling everyone to exercise and eat well mm -hmm. and sleep, but it creates this context when you can really sit a patient down and look at what their genomics are and look at their labs and say, Hey, here's like one specific thing that we're going to focus on. And here's how you can implement a change. that's going to focus on that based on, you know, who you are and an individualized approach, even though some of the advice is fairly general, it's coming at it from a personalized perspective. Absolutely. So we talked about how you might use some of these, um, just in terms of being training and increasing and, in, uh, movement and being wary of things like DOMS or rhabdo, but how would you use this information regarding recovery with maybe other things like lab markers or something like HRV in order to guide training volume and recovery for a patient? Sure. So, you know, looking through some of these genomic SNPs that we can look at. So, you know, IL-6, CRP, and the SOD2, as far as indicators of recovery and inflammatory response, and then taking that and pairing it into an athlete's programming. And so one of the things we've done um, with Wild Health is create some kind of standard exercise program that people can build off of that was helpful during the pandemic to give kind of a home-based program for people to start working on potentially. And so I'd use this information to modify the dose of high-intensity exercise potentially for someone who's just starting out. And so if you are a seasoned athlete like yourself, you, you kind of know what your body can tolerate and how you feel and how many hard workouts a week you can do. I think this is useful though, in people who are maybe transitioning from other activities into more high intensity or haven't done a lot of high intensity work in the past. And like we were talking about earlier, that the high intensity exercise is a really potent stimulus. I think it's super important to have some of that 
in your programming, but it can't be all your programming. You, you know, in order to be balanced, you're going to need to be working through different energy systems. Some of that's going to be having easy days. So having some days where you're doing some zone two work, you're going out for a walk with your dog, you're playing with your kids, you're doing yoga. Um, and then coupling that high intensity with appropriate recovery in order to create an adaptive response. And that's where things like HRV and resting heart rate monitoring come in. And if, are you using a wearable right now? Do you use a whoop or aura to monitor? Um, right now recovery? I'm just using the, the aura at night. Um, and then I was mm-hmm. wearing the whoop, but had some problems with my connectivity. So I haven't been wearing it. lately. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think these wearable devices are, are really fascinating and pairing that in. Uh, you can definitely see uh, people and their response to recovery and the downstream effects of that. So I think looking at HRV, which is heart rate variability for, for people who aren't familiar with that term, and that gives a signal of the parasympathetic versus the sympathetic balance and can be a clue as to when someone's starting to get overtrained or fatigued. And the interesting thing and challenging thing with HRV is it takes into account so many other pieces that go into this. So it's not just an indicator of training, but it's an indicator of life stress and family stress and diet and alcohol and you know, everything can go into this that creates stress can affect your HRV. So when I'm looking at HRV measurements of athletes over time, I think it's interesting to look at that on a kind of day-to-day basis, but more over a weeks to months basis and how we modify that training either towards a specific goal or towards the goal of longevity, where you're having some cycling, where you're either working harder and you're building towards a functional overreaching state and then backing off a little bit to allow recovery and adaptation versus the athlete who's kind of training all the time at this constant level. And I think that's where people, myself included, kind of tend to run into trouble, especially as you become an aging master's athlete and your time becomes stretched. It's like, I'm just going to go out and go really hard Mm -hmm. every day for an hour because that's the time that I have and Mm -hmm. not having those cycles where you're, you're building and maybe inducing a little bit more training load and then backing off. And, and that's where you run into problems with injury and disordered recovery and overtraining potentially if you get in deep enough. And so taking that HRV resting heart rate data, and then looking at that with the patient and putting that into a broader plan for, okay, here's how we're going to approach the next month of training and the next three months and the next year and then building on, okay, well, let's look at what your genetics are. So you're going to probably need maybe a little bit more off time in between your high intensity days. And so how do we focus on doing that? And then adding things in from a dietary or supplement perspective on top of that, that maybe fit with their genetics. So if you have downregulated SOD2, well, we know that polyphenols are really helpful with increasing that antioxidant response. So you're maybe going to benefit from having more blueberries in your diet, or even maybe taking an exogenous polyphenol supplement if you need it. We try and really do everything through dietary modification to start with, and then experimenting, seeing how you feel after doing those interventions and circling back. Love it. And you started mentioning too, just about injury risk and susceptibility. And that's another one where there are certain SNPs that we can look at. And for me, I found particularly interesting that I had the Cole 501 SNP, which is associated with Achilles and um, ACL tendinopathies. And so I wonder if knowing this ahead of time would have really, I, I think probably it would not have changed anything for me, but because um, I already knew I had Achilles problems anyways, and I probably mm-hmm. wasn't doing enough um, to prevent 
the uh, tear, even though I thought I was. Um, but this is really interesting because I think for me, regardless, like an Achilles tear was always something that was in the back of my mind is something that was really scary. And if maybe if you know, you're more susceptible, just incorporating some basic like eccentric toe raises or something into your regular routine can give you a little more peace of mind and prevent you from even getting to the point where you start to have, um, any issues before it gets to the point of a tear. Absolutely. And, and that COL, uh, 5A1 has been studied pretty extensively and has been shown to be a risk factor for tendinopathy, specifically Achilles tendinopathy, but also some data in ACL injuries potentially as well. And so those patients that carry that sniff, I'm really having a focus in on doing some what's called prehab. So some, some rehab before they're actually injured. So working so in Achilles, working through really posterior chain, stretching, focusing on lengthening that Achilles, doing an appropriate warm up, and then some eccentrics even before they're having symptoms and hopefully avoiding getting to the point where you got from the chronic tendinopathy then leading to a tear over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so just having that information, I think it can, you know, if that just adds maybe 10 minutes to what your pre or post workout looks like, that could be really valuable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, Okay. One other topic that I wanted to get into was on sports performance supplements. Cause I think this is a big one. Um, there are certain supplements that we know from large randomized studies that can have an impact on performance. Um, caffeine is a great example, but then when you get down to it, you realize that there are actually certain SNPs that, um, predispose people to having a positive response to caffeine or not having as good of a response to caffeine with, exercise. Um, so can you talk about caffeine and maybe any other sports performance supplements that we can, um, guide and a more precision approach? So this is really interesting and looking kind of in a, a broad view of the data on sports supplements and how this applies, because there's a lot, I mean, all these supplements have been studied and the effects of some of them are, are marginal or, there's minimal to no effect. And then looking back, I just have to wonder like so many areas of medicine, are we just not studying this in the right population? So if you took someone and you knew they had this certain SNP and then you studied a supplement that was targeted at that, would the response be a lot more robust? And I think we can see that with the caffeine response in the CYP1A2 SNP. And a couple studies there showing the response and as a caffeine is an ergogenic aid in people who carry this SNP. And the study I'm thinking most of it was done in cyclists in the time trial, where is the, the cyclist who carried the risk wheel uh, actually did significantly worse with caffeine supplementation. And those who had the active allele or the, the, um, the non-risk allele mm -hmm. had an improved performance. So kind of across the board, we tend to tell athletes that like, oh yeah, caffeine's beneficial and everyone mm -hmm. should take caffeine before doing a big effort, but that's probably not the case. And looking on a more personalized basis, you can test this and see that some patients actually did significantly worse and some did better. So it can really help guide what you counsel your athletes as far as pre-workout supplements and pre, uh, if they got a big event, like pre-performance, what, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And then testing that also in athletes individually, because this is just one snip. So it's, you know, everyone's going to respond a little bit differently potentially. And then I think also on the caffeine front, looking at the Adora 2A SNP, which can have a role in caffeine and anxiety and jitteriness is something I've 
been pairing more with this SIP1A2 SNP as well, and maybe using something like L-theanine, which can uh, maintain the, the ergogenic and kind of focus effects of caffeine, but reduce the jitteriness and kind of the anxiety in some people that have that Adora TUA SNP that tend to get kind of wound up in a way that's not productive with taking caffeine. So I think that's a really great example of using a precision-based approach to sports supplementation and not using a kind of one-size-fits-all mentality. The other things that are really interesting on the supplement perspective, I think, are the MCT1 SNP, and that has to do with your lactic acid response and lactic acid buffering and how lactic acid is transported and can play a role in maybe who would respond well to bicarbonate supplementation or bicarb. And so that's something else to, to consider and look at as well, more probably on the endurance front, but for the CrossFit athlete, the bicarb buffering is also super important. And when you get into those really intense efforts in the five minute to 10 minute range, it's probably something that could be beneficial. Um, and then looking at methylation as well. So there's some interesting data showing that patients that have poor methylation, elevated homocysteine probably have diminished muscle strength and function also. So taking a look at MTHFR SNPs and then the downstream effects that with elevated homocysteine, and then maybe adding something like creatine, which could help to increase the, the flow of that methylation and decrease the homocysteine, but also creatine, I think has a lot of um, positive effects from a neurocognitive perspective, as well as from a performance perspective as well. Patients that have an MTHFR SNP though and elevated homocysteine could potentially do better with creatine supplementation. And so that's another one that we've been looking at and experimenting with a little bit. I love it. And I love how you emphasize that, you know, when you have this information, it's a starting place, but you still want to test it in the athlete and test it in probably a non-competition environment first and see what the response is. And this just really helps guide that process um, instead of, you know, testing every single supplement to determine what works for that athlete, you, this gives you a better place to start. And then hopefully you find the regimen that's going to be best for that athlete with fewer iterations of that experimentation. Yeah, absolutely. Please, please don't go take a bunch of bicarb before your big event. Um, because <laughs> that's something you definitely want to test in the comfort of your own home nearby a bathroom uh, uh -huh. before you go out and, and take that training. So be careful with that one. Love it. Well, you talked in the beginning about the role of genomics and then epigenetics. How do you think about um, the role of looking at genomics and these particular SNPs relative to other factors like sleep recovery, nutrition that could affect the epigenetics for an athlete? Like where do you, where does this all fall in, in terms of your hierarchy of your approach for working with athletes? Sure. So I, you know, I think this is something that's an interesting foundation uh, to build on. And if anything, it is a good way to start the conversation around that the epigenetic pieces that modify these SNPs. So what I don't like to do is just say, okay, well, here's, here's a list of 10 pages of your genes and here's five supplements. Now, good luck. You know, I think this is really best used as a way to start the conversation around the other things that we know are so important for longevity and athletic performance. Mm -hmm. And whether that's, you know, sleep optimization or making dietary changes or just starting or modifying an exercise program, but this can help guide us in a way to create a personalized plan and maybe help the patient also see the importance of like, okay, well, I'm not sleeping well. Now I can look at my resting heart rate and HRV data. And I can see that 
this is the effects it has on my recovery. And maybe I'm more prone to having disordered sleep or having trouble with recovery based on my genetics. So this is something I'm really going to dial in on and try and focus on as a goal over the next couple months. And then we'll retest and kind of see how things are going at that point. So I think that's where this information is best used. You know, like we were talking about kind of before we started, I don't think this is, this is not the end all be all. And this certainly doesn't trump other good sports science that we have. You know, we, we have a lot of smart people working in sports medicine that are working on performance enhancement and recovery and how to optimize all these different training adaptations and methods of training. And just having one SNP doesn't mean you get to throw out the rest of that other stuff. It, it can be maybe a way to individualize those recommendations in a way that works best for you and a way to build on other good sports scientists out there to hopefully create a program that's going to be the best use of how you're spending your time training. So you get the best adaptation with the least risk of injury. Love it. Um, and you also mentioned how this is all still very new. What are you most excited about as we look towards the future and what, where the current state of research is with exercise genomics? I think the, the things that really have me excited in this field are being able to do more point of care testing potentially. Mm -hmm. And so not only more studies coming out, looking at the individual genomics and then the correlations between that and the downstream adaptations and training, but then how do we test that in the athlete to see like after activity, is there a protein marker that we can look at that will show us that you've you know, achieved your goal for that day, that you've met a training response threshold that's going to be productive down the road for what your goals are. And so I don't think we're, we're there yet, but seeing what the downstream effects of these um, genetic factors are, and then being able to predict like, okay, so you, you had a, a really good workout. We're going to do a point of care blood test and look at the proteomics of what's going on or the microRNA that are expressed. So we can see maybe that mRNA that's going to go and signal for adaptation and muscle hypertrophy. And that way, instead of, you know, like the way we do training now, it's like, well, you train for six or eight or 12 weeks, and then you hope you get better. And then you realize the things you're doing wrong and then you adjust and go back. But that time cycle is so long that it takes years to really determine what you're doing well and not well. So being able to have a more kind of immediate indicator of if you're getting the response that you want from your training and modify based off of that, I think that's coming down the pipeline in the next I don't know, five to 10 years. And I think it'll be really fascinating to see how that plays into the exercise programming and individualized exercise programs. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating and exciting to think about. Now, you know, we're just starting to see it with the wearables and the things like the whoop saying, here's your recovery score for today. Um, and thinking about how, you know, maybe I need another day off. Maybe I need to take it easy today, but the more information that we can input into, um, into a score like that, the more accurate it's going to be. And then the better overall adaptation that we're going to get. Yeah. Um, and then building in things like CGM data, um, which I think, you know, looking at maybe the, the use of optical CGM devices and then having that correlated as well uh, with the AI to go back and tie all those pieces together, I think will be really fascinating to see how this evolves. Yeah, it's very fascinating, very exciting. Awesome. Well, I want to start wrapping up with three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. 
Um, so for you, Mark, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Ooh, so I think, um, you know, one thing that we've, um, my family and I have gotten into over the last couple of years as doing meal planning, mm, um, which yeah. doesn't sound that exciting, <laughs> but we sit down as a family and map out the whole week of meals and everyone gets to pick something. Uh, and I found that to be probably one of the most positive influences that we've had um, as a family in our overall health, because then it's not that like scramble at mm -hmm. 5 30 PM to find something to eat and you end up making some bad food choices. So having that kind of meal plan and then leftovers where I get to take stuff to work, that mm -hmm. is something that's a better choice for me than doing something that's just picking up something on the go has been really helpful. I think for overall health, um, in general for not only for myself, but for my whole family. Mm -hmm. Um, the other two things, probably exercise, you know, I mean, I think I'd, I really enjoy exercising and trying to find a way to, to move that into the realm of, um, exercising for longevity and focusing a little bit less, maybe on pushing super hard on the performance end of things, maybe some days focusing on the performance, but, um, adjusting the mindset to focus on how I can exercise and train for the long-term as opposed for a very short-term goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I've also put more emphasis on sleep recently over the last couple of years, which has been, I think a huge change. And I think I've kind of downplayed how important sleep was, mm -hmm. but definitely feel a huge difference when I sleep well. That's great. That's great. For the meal planning, I'm curious, you have some young kids, right? I do. Yeah. I've got a four-year-old and eight-year-old. Do they, um, do they have like favorite meals or what happens if they're like, we want yeah. <laughs> pizza every night or like something like that. Do you guys get veto power? Or? <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. My, uh, <laughs> my, my daughter loves fish tacos. So we, oh, which yeah. I think is great because I love That's fish awesome. tacos too. So we end up making that, uh, probably once a week, which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and then my son, every, every time we ask him what he wants for dinner, he says candy. And then we'd come up with something different. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's one thing that you think would have an impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something that you're working on right now? I think the biggest thing I've been working on is, uh, creating a more regular mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. So trying to set aside that time, um, every day to do some kind of meditation or mindfulness and work on the recovery side of things as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I find that it's easy for me to skip that 10 minutes and for whatever reason, it seems to get pushed to the bottom of the list. So I'm trying harder and harder to really carve out that time, even if it's just 10 minutes a day to do some kind of meditation or mindfulness. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Has it, have you found like a time or strategy that helps seem like you, you get it in better than, than others? Uh-huh. Yeah. My, my strategy. So I, I work out really early in the morning cause it's the only time I can, can find. So I'm usually, um, in the garage gym at five 15 or five 30. And I try and be done before my kids wake up, which is the best <laughs> time to do anything I've found <laughs> if you want to actually get anything done. Yeah. So I usually try and tack that on to the end of my workout. And I've actually found That's it to great. be really helpful for me to try and set that time aside before I go into my work day. Mm -hmm. um, and before I get into it with, you know, family and everything else that's going on to try and kind of reframe before going into the day. So mm -hmm. that's what I try and do. Some days I'm successful, some days I'm not, but I'm trying to be, be more consistent. I love that. It's a great way to kind of cool down from a workout too. That's great.
Mm-hmm. All right. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? That's a hard one. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think uh, for me, I think probably balance is going to be the key part of that and trying to maintain balance between work and training and family and everything else that's going on, I think would be what I'd be looking for, for a healthy life. So I think the, the physical aspects of health, we focus a lot on, but trying to also dial in the mental aspects of health and the emotional aspects of health as well. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been a struggle to try and recognize that and try and give those the importance that they deserve. And so that's what I'm hopefully trying to work on more over the next 10 to 20 to 40 years is finding that balance between how do you manage all these different things in a way that, that works for me. Right. It's a constant process and a constant flex. Like we'll never probably find the perfect balance, but, um, or when we do something will change, we'll have to readjust. So. Yeah. You can find it for like 10 minutes and then you (laughs) You just enjoy it there. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. That's great. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Mark. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully people listening will find this helpful and interesting and we'll be following the research here too, because I know it's an exciting area. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and giving Pursuing Health a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help to get the podcast out to more people. If you're interested in learning more about genomics-based precision medicine from Wild Health, you can visit www.wildhealthfellowship.com for more on their fellowship program for physicians and health coaches. Again, that's www.wildhealthfellowship.com.